Alrighty. Does anyone, uh, I still have a few copies of the notes. I don't know how many are in there. Just pick you out a set. If anyone else needs any, just raise your hand. Okay, let's see. One, two, three, four, five. Uh, let me see here. I have one, but I can't find it. I put it up. <laughs> nine, I think maybe ten pages. Oh, no, see, that's the... Uh, that's the original there. I made some. I better keep hold of it. Well. Surely, surely there's not that many pages. Well, I guess there is. I tell you what, evidently I only have one copy. So what I will do is I will get copies of that and uh, get that for you. I apologize. I thought I had several more copies. We need about six or seven copies. 17 pages front and back. 17 pages front and back. So uh, that's the original that I had. So if you you can copy those and put it front and back and it'll not take up as much space. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate that. All right. We are talking about Calvinism and we've been talking about uh, the idea of total hereditary depravity. Uh, Born into this world as a sinful Individual already having sin laid to our account, uh, and, and we covered uh, several several of the uh, uh, verses or passages that the uh, the denominational world will use in doing that. We've noticed Psalm fifty one about how David was born sinful, but when we look at the passage, he says that he was uh, his birth came about. Because of sin, and we talked about uh, the uh, the sin between uh, uh, Tamar and Judah, and we know that that must have been what David was talking about because in Psalm one twenty two he rejoices that he could now enter into the temple, and the child that was born uh, through uh, as an illegitimate child was not able to enter into the temple until the tenth generation. And David was that tenth generation. But I want us to notice tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This is another passage or chapter used, uh, or verse used by the uh, adherents to Calvinism uh, to, uh, in their minds, prove the point. 1 Corinthians 2. 14. And that says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Well, the, the idea behind this verse is that the natural man, any individual born to God, can't understand. We can't understand God's words. And so... We have to have that direct operation of the Holy Spirit upon us to want to be able to understand those words and that uh, without uh, God choosing to save us, we are not able to be saved. Now, for us to understand exactly what this verse means, we need to understand what natural man. What's Paul talking about? He says the natural man uh, he's talking about those things, or those people rather, 
that are concerned with the material world. People that are not spiritually minded. We've all known people like that, haven't we? People that were not spiritually inclined in any way, had no desire really to uh, uh, learn about things of God. They were simply uh, focused upon the physical world. Uh, Better job, more money, nicer things. And the list goes on and on. Those are just some examples. Uh, When we talk about, or when Paul talked about Demas, he said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Well, the uh, construction of the sentence there indicates love, loving the present world, loving to live in this world, okay? And it's not just glad to be alive in the world, which I think we all ought to appreciate that. It's loving the things of this world ahead of loving God. Now, we ought to appreciate the nature that God has given us. Uh, Bobby and Effie traveled to some... uh, uh, National parks, I love doing that myself. I appreciate being there and seeing those things. But there's a difference between appreciating something and and loving it to the point where you put it before God. And so, Paul's talking about this uh, person who would neglect spiritual things. They seek earthly wisdom. Notice 1 Corinthians 1. Let's back up a little bit. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. So, when we look at a, at a verse, we kind of need to understand the context of it, right? We can lift one verse out of context and prove about anything we want to. So, we need to back up a little bit and understand what Paul is talking about. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. People who are not going to obey the gospel, people who are not going to adhere to the principles of God's law, to them, preaching from the Bible is foolishness, right? But to those of us who are going to be saved, those of us who are faithful, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And now... Uh, the Holy Spirit here, here is, is being a little bit sarcastic. Okay, He is employing that literary device. He said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise or those who think they are wise uh, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Those who think they have the knowledge uh, that they need to have and that God's knowledge is foolishness. He said, I will destroy that. Then he asked, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And he goes on to talk about those similar things. So the context of 1 Corinthians is they had a lot of problems in Corinth, right? They had divisions. Why? Well, they had people that thought they knew more. They thought they knew better than God. They were going to call themselves after a man. They were denominating themselves. Uh, They had uh, sinful things going on. Why? Because they thought that showed their great... Uh, love for someone, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, by not disciplining the fornicator in their midst. So they were using the wisdom of the world. So Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 2.14, within this same context, the natural man is he that does not want to engage in spiritual things. He is involved in the natural world and he wants to gain his information and wisdom 
from them. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2. We can take verse 14 and we can uh, devise some kind of a doctrine saying that the natural man is the one that is just naturally born and can't understand anything unless we continue to read God's Word. Now let's look at verse 15. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The spiritual man is the one that wants to gain the mind of Christ. How do we do that? Through the Word. That's exactly right. We do it through a study of God's Word. So now we see that we're, we're not someone like the natural man that believes he can instruct God. Do we have that going on in our world today? We've got people that think that they know better than God, that uh, the Bible is outdated, and uh, that's the natural man that does that. The spiritual man says, I want to know the, the mind of God. I want to know what God says. So I'm going to go to the Scripture. I'm going to go to His special revelation to give me what I need to have, what I need to know. And so now we begin to see this difference. The natural man is not talking about just anyone that's born. It's talking about those who do not wish to listen to God. And the spiritual man is the opposite. And so we see that that can't be the case, that this is a support of Calvinism. Carnal man, yeah, you could say carnal man. The carnal man, and in fact, uh, the New King James may say that, I'm not sure. But uh, the, the worldly man, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, that person that isn't really interested in the spiritual things. And so, just like any of these uh, passages that we've covered so far, you might take one verse and misapply it in some way, to use it for support, but when we look at the context of the thought behind what the writer is saying, we come to understand that that is not possible. Any comments? Questions? Well, let's stay in Corinthians. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> this is another verse that uh, is misused and misapplied. Notice verse 22. <clears throat> For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the, the teaching here is uh, that Adam brought physical death upon all people, and therefore everyone that dies bears the guilt and the penalty of Adam. So God punished Adam with physical death, and then anyone that comes along that dies is suffering that same penalty. Well, you know, anyone that has ever lived is going to die, right? Everyone that has ever lived has died in some way. Even those who were taken by God, Enoch, uh, Elijah, they still died by having their body and their soul separated, right? They didn't uh, go through a physical death like the rest of us, but their body and their soul were separated, and that's what death is, right? When the body and the soul separate. And so anyone that ever lives is going to die, so that's kind of a blanket statement that anyone could make. And I agree that from that aspect of it. But let's notice, similar to Romans chapter 5, 
beginning with verse 12, he makes a similar statement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And he goes on through, uh, I think, verse 21, talking about that. But here's the thing. If we're going to say that everyone that ever lived, they're going to die, and because they are going to die, they are being uh, punished or paying a penalty because they have inherited Adam's sin. Well, if that is the case, then we can just as easily say, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That means everybody that has ever lived will be made alive, if that's what this verse is indicating. Now, is that the case? Well, let's go over to... Let me see if I can find it here. I thought it was Luke 14. Maybe it's not. Uh, Oh, yeah, Luke 13. Let's notice verse 24. Well, actually, let's back up to verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, talking about Jesus. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them. So he was asked the question, are there just going to be a few saved or is everyone going to be saved? Now, if we listen to the Calvinist teaching and we go back to uh, our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if... Everyone is guilty, then everyone must be saved. Well, then the answer would be yes, everybody be saved, right? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 24, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen and, and hath shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the, at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. And of course, we all remember the parable of the gates, right? You have the, the narrow gate and the wide gate, or, and you have the straight way and the broad way. And he said, few be there that go in, talking about the straight way. So if we look at 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, if the first part is we're all guilty, the second part has to be we're all going to be saved. That stands in direct contradiction to what Jesus said, right? So what must that mean? That means that uh, when sin came into the world, we will, when we come to the age of accountability, abide in that in some way, right? And so we have to have this plan of salvation to be able to come out of sin, to be justified. We're talking about that on Sunday mornings in Romans. And so there was an effect that happened because of sin coming into the world. The tree of life was removed from the garden. No one has access to it. And so through natural means, the body will die, right? And through uh, personal choice, just like Adam and Eve made in the garden, we will choose to sin and we 
have the opportunity to spiritual life if we will choose to go that way. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, being guilty of what Adam did. And we, we've already talked about that earlier, right? Not being guilty of the son, not being guilty of what the father said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're going to suffer physical death, but it's got nothing to do with Adam's sin. Personally, for us, uh, Adam and Eve sinned and and brought uh, uh, caused the tree of life to be removed from the garden. But we're not, we do not have to answer for that sin. That is a byproduct of their sin. Now that happens in the world, doesn't it? Have you ever known a family who's, you know, usually it's a, it's a father who is uh, not living properly. He's spending all of his money on alcohol or gambling or something. And the family suffers because of that. Now did they do something to uh, cause that to happen? Are they are they paying a price for some sin that they that they made? No, that's not the case, is it? They happen to uh, be uh, uh, affected by the choices of other people. Okay, that's just the way it is in the world. We as humans have been affected by the choice of Adam in that we're not living in the garden now. We don't have access to the tree of life, right? But sometimes I think I may be a little hard on Adam because. If it hadn't have been Adam, it would have surely been someone else, right? That chose to sin, and and likely if it had waited all the way down to me, it would have been me. So, you know, uh, we have to understand that we do suffer from the choices of other people, but that's not that doesn't mean that we're answering for their sins, right? And that's the Calvinistic doctrine that we're answering for the sins of other people. I want us to notice. Uh, well, uh, Matthew seven thirteen and fourteen. I, I made mention to that the parable of the choices, right? Uh, the broad gate and the, the narrow gate. Christ taught against that. The penalty is what is inherent, not the guilt, right? The penalty, the penalty that was given to Adam, physical death, because he had to go out of the garden. That's what is inherent, not the guilt. We're not guilty of what Adam did. But because of his choice, we are affected in a physical way. Does that make sense? Any comments or questions? Let's notice Second Corinthians seven. Second Corinthians seven, verse one. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now here's the teaching. The false teaching is that both flesh and spirit are defiled. Okay? Now, let's start the discussion with who's the letter written to. Second Corinthians was written to Christians. Okay. Written to the church at Corinth. 
not the alien sinner. Uh, the, the whole, the bulk of the New Testament after the book of Acts was written solely to Christians. That's who the letters were written to. Okay, does that mean that uh, a, a non-Christian cannot gain information and learn from No, that's not what it means. But we have to understand who he's writing to, okay? Uh, the text is written to Christians and Paul is telling them to cleanse themselves from all filthiness, okay, of both flesh and spirit, not that they were born with a filthy spirit. Okay, that's not what, he didn't say that at all, did he? That's not what he said. A newborn baby does not have the opportunity to, to uh, commit sin in his new physical body, does he? A newborn baby really can't do a whole lot, right? They're not able to do much in this uh, in this body, and beyond that, not only do they not have the opportunity because they're physically limited, they do not have the mindset to commit sin. Right? Not babies don't, and uh, so we have to understand that we are talking about grown people that have. Uh, come to the age of accountability, and that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about Christians, and what do we have to be able to do in order to be a Christian? We first have to be able to believe, right? Matthew sixteen sixteen. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. So we have to have that capacity to believe. And those are the people that he's writing to. And so when we talk about, or when Paul talks about flesh and spirit in this reference, He's talking about our whole lives. Okay, that's again, that's a technique that that writers use. That's a literary device. Your whole life, mind, body, and spirit, right? And so he's talking about our whole lives. Do all that we can do, and let's avoid any kind of filthiness, either spiritually or physically. And of course, again, he didn't say we're born with a uh, with a filthy. Spirit. Not at all is what he's talking about. Any comments? Brother Joe. Yeah. Whosoever will, meaning whoever chooses to do that, right? And so that's an opportunity for us to say, okay, that's what I choose to do. That's what I want to do. And that indicates a capability of mind, right? I, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I have an uncle, and he's probably 70 years old. As a baby, he had, uh, I don't know if it was scarlet fever or meningitis, maybe meningitis or something like that, and he had a real, really high fever, and it, it damaged his brain. Okay, And so he is on the level of probably a five-year-old. Well, he never has been accountable. He can't have the will to... Uh, turn his life over either to sin or to God. He doesn't have that capability, right? He doesn't have the capability to be a Christian because he, his, his mind has never developed enough for that to happen. And so when we look at these passages, one of the first things we need to notice, who's the audience, right? Who's the audience of the letter? Well, it's grown people, Christians, people who have uh, had the will to come to Christ, people who have had the mindset to be able to say, okay, there's some things in my life that, that I'm not behaving properly. And so uh, when, we, when we start off like that, 
uh, we uh, we can come to a little bit better understanding. I think. Let me let me point out any, any other comments. Uh, let me point out just a few. You'll see in the, in the notes there uh, some some other passages that we can use when talking to people. In Exodus 32, 31 through 33, when uh, uh, Moses asked God to punish him and spare Israel, what did God say? We don't punish the innocent, right? We, we, those who are guilty are the ones who are punished. And so, you know, from the very beginning nearly, God has never punished the innocent. When we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, Cain was punished, he was guilty. Uh, we go back into the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were punished, they were guilty. But we notice that Adam and Eve were not punished for what Cain did. Cain was the one punished for what Cain did. And so, um, you know, we don't see uh, Abel being punished in some way. And of course, I think Ezekiel 18, we've talked about that, is one of the greatest passages to prove God's mind on punishing the innocent. doesn't happen. We're not guilty of the sins of our fathers. Our fathers are not guilty of the sins of their sons or daughters. Well, I think that that was like uh, uh, it was a much like uh, Adam dying and, and us dying physically. They were not guilty of that. They were not. The punishment was not guilt. They were not. Uh, guilty of doing anything, that happened to be a uh, uh, an effect of what happened. Tamar and Judah fornicated, and so for ten generations the effect was that those people could not enter into the temple. They weren't being punished, that was just a result of what the actions of someone else is. It's like the uh, the, the children of a father who will not support them. You know, look, they're not going to eat properly. They're not going to have a proper clothing and, and the proper shelter. They're not suffering a punishment as far as guilt. They are suffering because of the actions of someone else. And that just happens to be the result of what happened. So they're not being guilty of anything. They simply cannot enter into the temple. Does that make sense? That That's a consequence, yeah. God did make that law. Yeah, it's all law, though. Well, it's still a consequence of what... It's a consequence of what happened, whether it was a law God put into place or whether it was uh, just a result of someone else's action. Okay, For instance, uh, Achan... We remember Achan, they went up to, to battle at Ai, and he had stolen the Babylonian garments, the wedge of gold, and, and things of that nature. Well, he hid them in his tent. Well, when Israel went up to fight against Ai, they were defeated. And so, and there's, uh, there was a law that God said, He told them, don't take anything. Don't take anything for yourself. The spoils belong to God, right? Well, he had stolen those things. Well, who, who was, uh, uh, who was punished? Who was guilty? Well, Ai or uh, uh, Achan, man, <laughs> my mind. Achan was was punished, but who was killed? The whole family, right? Everything was burned as a consequence of what he did. 
Okay, now, we don't have a lot of detail about that, so it's hard for us to dig into that particular occurrence and say, well, that was harsh or this was that or whatever, because we don't know the dynamic of that family. They may have been going along right in the very trail of Aiken, okay? And at some point would have caused a problem on down the line. So we don't really know any details beyond God is a righteous God and He will always do that which is right. And the result of what Achan did, his family suffered consequence. Okay? But they didn't personally steal anything. Now they may have known he did that. They may have been very aware that he had dug a hole inside the tent and buried those things. Okay? I kind of feel like probably they knew that. But they, they didn't commit the sin. Okay? So they're not, uh, they're not being uh, found guilty of doing anything. It's just a consequence of someone else's actions. You know, sin affects a lot of people, right? It very seldom ever affects just one individual. Any other, anything else? Well, let's talk about the second tenet of Calvinism. We've talked about total hereditary depravity. Now, the, uh, in our tulip, uh, the next one is unconditional election. Now, what happens in anything that is not true? You have one thing that's a lie. What eventually happens? You have to have another lie, right? Then you have another lie. You have another lie. A friend of mine had gotten involved in a lifestyle that was not appropriate. And it's just his whole life all of a sudden became one lie right after the other. He couldn't even keep up with them. You know, he didn't know what he said about this or said about that. And, you know, eventually repented and he got his life straightened out. But Calvinism is the same way. Okay, we have total hereditary depravity. Okay, everybody's born sinful. Now, because of that, we have to have unconditional election. It has to be that way. Now, we know this as uh, predestination. Predestination. Since mankind is completely and totally depraved, he cannot respond to the Lord's invitation. So you see how it's, how it's growing? Everybody's born completely sinful and total hereditary depravity means com- everybody in the world, totally, through uh, the sins of our fathers and our mothers, we are completely depraved. Nothing good whatsoever in us at all. We cannot make a good choice. And if we did make a good choice, we had an ulterior motive, which made it bad. So because of that, we have to be predestined because it's not in us to be able to want to do right. And so it's like a snowball. It just gets bigger and bigger. Or it's like an onion. You peel back you know, one layer, you got another layer. And so we see we have this... Uh, Total hereditary depravity. Uh, now this is based in Calvin's view of God's sovereignty, okay? Uh, what this means is God is totally sovereign, and we believe that, but what they've done here is they've taken away the ability for man to choose. Since God is sovereign, everything that happens in the world happens because that's what He wanted, Okay? Uh, and we've all heard people say, you know, happen for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. No, everything doesn't happen for a reason. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, right? And so, uh, but this is based in that everything that happens in the world happens specifically because God is sovereign in every, and He chooses for everything to happen. 
Well, you know, let's look into that just a little bit. Let's notice uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. God has predestined and foreordained some men and angels to everlasting life out of His free grace and love without any foresight of faith or works in man or perseverance in either of them. And others are foreordained to everlasting death and the number of either is so certain and definite that it cannot be increased or diminished. And I have other, you'll notice in your notes, other uh, similar statements from different denominations. And so, you're either born saved or you're born lost. There's not a thing in the world we can do about that. And so, it can't, uh, you're not going to have any more saved people, and you're not going to have any less saved people. It is what it is. And, uh, you know, one thing when I was doing this study initially, I thought about the Jehovah's Witnesses. We're going to study their doctrines a little later on. You know, originally, there was only 144,000 going to be saved out of the entire world from the beginning to the end, right? 144,000. Well, when their numbers overall increased and got larger than 144,000, they had to make some changes to their doctrine, right? So what are they saying? We've got now 150,000 members of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, but we're only going to let 144,000 get into heaven. So they had to change their doctrine, see? Uh, and, and they're very Calvinistic in a lot of their ways. So they changed it to the 144,000 are going to be in heaven. The rest of us are going to live on earth eternally uh, in a physical world, okay? But what has happened here over the years, though this statement is said in this particular confession of faith, the doctrine continues to evolve and change as the years go by. There is really no uh, denomination that I'm aware of that completely embraces word for word the Calvinistic doctrines from the beginning to the end. I don't know of any denomination other than uh, the, the primitive Baptist that, that embrace all of this. I know that they do. They, they won't even, you know, they say, hey, there's no point doing evangelizing or anything. You're saved, you're lost. So all they do is they come together for fellowship and to encourage each other while they live on earth is what they say. Well, at least you got to give it to them. They adhere to their doctrine, right? They stick to it. But no other denomination I'm aware of does that. They're going all over the world uh, looking to convert people, right? And so uh, things change, things change. But let's notice quickly before we end, Acts 10, verse 34. This is a very destructive passage in God's Word concerning unconditional election or predestination. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Next verse says, But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Boy, how in the world do we fit that together with predestination? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a death blow to me anyway. I think that's the death knell for uh, uh, predestination. And then we go back and we look at this idea of how much of Calvinism do we have to debunk? Right? How much do we have to prove is incorrect? One point. That's it. One point. If one point is false, 
It's all false, okay? Uh, because in that doctrine, one is built right upon the next one, okay? We've shown total hereditary depravity to be a false statement, so if you knock the foundation out, you, what are we going to build predestination upon? Well, there's nothing, right? We show predestination to be false. You know, what are we going to build limited atonement upon? And so, you know, let's keep that in mind. I think that uh, uh, letter D here in your notes on page 13, Calvin Institutes states that all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or death. And then we read Acts 10.34. Just does not make sense, you know. And when we look at the aspect of God, uh, Paul saying, talking about God, who would have all men to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to be saved, right? Directly in contradiction with this doctrine. You know, directly in contradiction with it. And it's just amazing to me when I think of it, why that is a difficult a concept to grasp, right? Well, here's what it is. I believe this was all my heart. We grow up knowing something, right? And we never question it. We have people in the church that have done that over the years, right? They grew up in the church. They heard heard the doctrines that have been taught and they didn't really investigate themselves. And they just accepted it based on what mom and dad said or based on what the preacher said, right? Well, it's not. that's not good for Christians, you know, for the church to do that. We need to... We need to find out. We need to investigate, right? Uh, try the spirits, whether they be of God, right? And so uh, uh, I think that's what it is. But when we have opportunity to uh, speak with people who are members of denomination, we need to keep that in mind, right? We need to keep in mind that they're just trusting in what uh, their parents have told them. You know, they're not intentionally trying to uh, believe a doctrine that we can show is in contradiction to the Bible. So we have to handle them easily. We have to be kind with them in the way in which we address them, right? Well, we'll pick up here next time. And uh, we're going to talk a little more about predestination, exactly what that is, and uh, the ways that we can uh, uh, go about showing through the Scriptures that that is not, not the case. And again, I, I want to point out that in a class like this, we're going to talk about the beliefs of, of various denominations, and we'll talk about, by name, some denominations, and we'll mention those, and we're not doing that in a mean-spirited way. But in a class setting like this, that's what we have to do if we're going to talk about a, a false doctrine, right? And uh, uh, again, I don't think it's my job as, a, as an evangelist to uh, talk about all the denominations up the road. That's not, that's not my purpose. I'm here to preach the truth, and talk about the gospel. But in a class setting like this, this is a discussion class. So we're going to, various names will come up, but we're, again, it's not done in a spirit of meanness or anything like that. So uh, uh, let's just keep that in mind. All right. Uh, I would like to mention, uh, I didn't get an opportunity to talk to Ron. I visited with uh, with Ronnie yesterday in the hospital, and uh, his leg is getting better. It was uh, I could see they had made ink marks on his leg where it had swollen and it was red and it was way down, so that's good. And uh, just as Ron said, they want to get a stent in that left leg. And uh, I believe that I have made a, a, a good connection with his wife. And I don't know the I don't know the background or the detail on that, 
but uh, I think I made a connection with her. So if we have opportunity to encourage them, maybe give them a call, uh, you know, tell her we're thinking about her and, and what we did. I'd got a hold of uh, uh, Clay. Kathy was it yesterday, and uh, uh, went by the store and uh, picked up a few snacks and things like that because it's hard to sit at the hospital. And took that to her, and she really appreciated that. And so I think now we have an open door here. So let's pray about that, okay? Let's pray about that, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, she can be uh, restored. Uh,